Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Knock Knock I with Dr. Glockham Flecken. That's me. Uh, this is a subsidiary of Knock Knock High. Our uh, original episodes of the podcast. Well, these are our month, our weekly episodes where I get to talk about all the eyeball stuff I want, and nobody can stop me. Not that anybody would. I just, maybe some people just wouldn't care. I don't know. It's uh, you all care because you're listening, and I have actually been thrilled with how these knock knock eye episodes are going. You guys love the eyeball stuff, and I I appreciate that because obviously I love the eyeball stuff, and and I. I am, I'm kind of curious, like, what exactly is it? Like, what can I, how do I keep the momentum going? How do I keep you guys interested in eyeball? Or what is, exactly is it that, that you're enjoying about eye, eye stuff, ophthalmology stuff? But I, I think a lot of it is, and I, 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 I feel this whenever I listen to podcasts of people. And I think it just kind of, it's fun when you hear somebody who's an expert in their field, talk about that field. Especially if it's like something you're just not that familiar with, that, but it's kind of interesting or kind of weird or kind of strange, uh, like ophthalmology or like eyeballs are to a lot of people. Like, oh, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Oh, what's going on with an eye? What's happening inside there? What are those rods and cones? What are, uh, the glaucoma, that's a funny, wait, that sounds like your name, Dr. Glockenflecken. Yeah, it does. Um, and so it's like, people, like, this is natural curiosity that a lot of people have. And then you have somebody like me who's like dedicated his career for some reason to that thing. It, I guess it's just kind of interesting. I, I think that, that I think that way whenever I hear other people who are experts in their field talk about things. So maybe that's probably part of it. Um, and maybe some of you just really do have a fascination with eyeballs though. Uh, and so I am happy to oblige, uh, and provide all the knowledge that I can, we are talking today about the cornea. Now, I will be the first person to admit I am not a fan of the cornea. It's fine. It's fine. I just, it never really, it was never something that I was like, yes, uh, the cornea, this is great. Uh, in fact, when I interview, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. A lot of med students now who are applying to whatever specialty they feel like I, I feel like there's this there's this collective push to like get med students to like want to do a research career. They want to do a fellowship and then like hardcore research, publish, publish, publish. And uh, and I, I may have talked a little bit about some of this stuff before, but um, th- that's that I was never that interested in research. I'm I, I I'm definitely on the record here saying like, no, I'm not a research person by any means. Like other people need to do the research and I'll be, I'd be happy to read the research and give you a round of applause for the wonderful research you do, but that's not me. But, but I do feel like there's a lot of pressure on med students to, to want to pursue a research career so much so that whenever I was interviewing, I, you know, I had like a couple little research projects. I didn't, I didn't really have any, like I didn't have any publications or anything, but, um, I, I felt like even against my like deep seated need to avoid research, <laughs> I felt like I had to be interested in it. And I would kind of like 
you know, I wasn't lying, but but maybe not like being totally truthful about my uh, my hatred of doing research. Uh, and so I would say things during my interviews in ophthalmology at ophthalmology programs like, yeah, I want to do a fellowship. You know, I thought I would I kind of thought certain things were interesting. So I'd like, you know, like, oh, LASIK, that sounds kind of cool. Maybe I'll do a cornea fellowship. So in fact, when, so when I was interviewing, I would actually tell programs that I, yeah, of course I want to do, uh, I want to do, I'm interested in subspecialties. Sub, uh, cornea and LASIK and refractive, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I want to do that. Yeah, that's, hey, and that, you know, fellowships, that goes, that those are in academic places. Maybe I, I want to do academic, almost like, like trying to convince myself that I wanted to be in academics and be subspecialized because I thought that's what programs needed to hear. That's otherwise I would not get, I would not match. I would not do ophthalmology, which, which is, is, this ridiculous and that shouldn't be that way. Uh, and, and so uh, I guess, I don't know the point of, I'll get to the point, but what, I guess one point is to med students listening to this, it's okay. If you don't want to do a fellowship, like we need general medical doctors, right? Like hospitalists, uh, just, you know, pediatricians, not necessarily like a pediatric subspecialty trained physician, but like a, a general pediatrician. It goes out in the community and just like, hey, this sees all the kids in the community. That's what I am as an ophthalmologist. I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist. I didn't do a fellowship. No, hell no. I was out after residency. Ooh, give me a job. I am done. I'll start paying back my student loans, please. And um, and so I just comprehensive. I'll see you kind of whatever. But I think back to that person I was interviewing for residency positions, and I was just like, I was so different and was trying to convince myself that I needed to do, that I was happy to do a fellowship, that I loved research, that I wanted that life. And then I, I slowly, you know, once I got into residency, I just became honest with myself and was like, damn. I don't want to do this IRB submission paperwork. Like this is the worst thing I've ever had to do. And it wasn't even that hard. It's just like, it's just like soul destroying to even think about like that being my career. And that's just me. That's me. That's not somebody else. I'm so glad we have people that do research, but it's not for me. And it doesn't have to be for you either. Uh, and one, one little anecdote, um, <laughs> just about this, I, when I was interviewing, I interviewed at a place, a program where the, the chair, I interviewed with the chair of the program and he asked me, he was like, what do you, what do you want to do? What, you know, what's your, what's your plan? What's your career goal? Where, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Something like that. And I, I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I don't know how I said it, but I said, I'm pretty sure I want to subspecialize, you know, maybe in cornea, maybe in refractive. And he just, he laughed. He goes, <laughs> so specialize. It's an eyeball. How big could it be? It's 24 millimeters long. You want to subspecialize? All you, he's like, all you med students, they're coming in. You're telling me, you tell me you want to subspecialize. It's an eye. It's very, very small. <laughs> and it, it made me laugh at the time. 
And and honestly, it was exactly what I wanted to hear. I needed someone to call me out on my bullshit. <laughs> Be like, what are you doing? You really want to subspecialize? Um, I guess he he probably he knew that I I it I really maybe it did not sound like like that's really what I wanted, and he could tell, uh, which doesn't surprise me, and uh, and called me out on it, and I loved him for that, uh, and I ranked that program uh, very highly, and ended up matching at the University of Iowa. That was Keith Carter, the chair of ophthalmology at the University of Iowa, one of my favorite people in the world. And and that program, I knew because of what that interaction I had with him that they would not try to put me into an academic career, that they'd be okay with me being, and, and not just okay, but encourage me to be a comprehensive ophthalmologist if I wanted it. And which is exactly what I wanted. I just, I just want to, I just want to do cataracts. I want to help people. I want to, I want to like, you know, make people see better. You don't need a sub. You don't need a fellowship for that. If you want to do a fellowship, more power to you. But, but we need people that also just want to like take care of patients and maybe not so much research, but anyway. All right. So that was, uh, yeah, once upon a time, I was all maybe all about the corneas and the refractive, but not so much anymore. And part of the reason I would say um, is that I hated cornea so much is just because it's hard. <laughs> it's it's well, part of it's also I just got bored with it, just like I got bored with every subspecialty that I went through in residency. But cornea in particular, it's very, very challenging. When something goes wrong with the cornea, it just turns various shades of white. I found it. I find it very challenging. Uh, and uh, for, for it's, it's a specialty for very smart people. Uh, and so I, you know, more power to people that are, that like the, the kind of the, the corneal, that corneal life. I'm not about the corneal life, but our topic today, which is one that, uh, uh, many of you have suggested over the last few weeks is related to the cornea. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with our patient presentation. <laughs> All right, we are back. Knock, knock, I patient presentation is a 20-year-old male with a history of eczema. Eczema. E-C-Z-E-M-A. Eczema. That's a word that's, a word that's uh, so strange it belongs in the field of ophthalmology. Presents with blurry vision. All right, so a 20-year-old comes in. You know, for like a you know, blurry vision. So obviously the first thing we're going to do is check vision. We're going to see how well they're reading on the chart. And this person, I'll say the, 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 he read about uh, 2050. 2050. We've talked about what that means. Um, but, you know, think of 2020 as, as, as perfect vision. In most states, you have to have at least one eye that sees 2040 in order to be able to drive with an unrestricted license. So 2050 is getting into pretty... Pretty good amount of vision loss, of blurriness. And so what I'll do for, for really any patient is we try to do a refraction to see if we can get that patient seen better. So a patient without glasses is coming in. They're seeing 2050. I'm going to see if I can make them see better with glasses. Because if you can get a patient seeing 2020 with glasses, then you're done. As far as the vision part goes, like great, perfect. Your eyes are probably very, very healthy, if not completely healthy. Uh, so 
And the refraction, you guys, that's when you go to the eye doctor and they put the thing in front of you and they one or two or three or four, or if we're getting real, <laughs> if we're having a great day, we get up to nine or 10. That's, oh man, whew, what a day, nine or 10, maybe an 11 or 12. No, that's uh, whew, too much. Anyway, that is using the four opter. That's that big machine that goes right in front of you and you, that has the different lenses in it. And that's to, that's a machine that that looks that tries to figure out your glasses prescription basically. So anyway, for this patient, this twenty year old history of eczema, blurry vision, um, try to uh, refract uh, the patient and uh, only refracts to about twenty twenty five. A twenty year old with perfectly healthy eyes, which this patient on dilated exam, everything looks great, um, should see twenty twenty. Well, one thing that you can commonly see, not I guess not commonly, but it's it's uh, something you got to think about with a young person, uh, especially in the kind of early 20s, you know, second, third decade of life is a, a problem with the cornea. So if um, if I can't get a patient with no other obvious eye problem, if I can't get that patient seeing 2020, then I'll do what's called a corneal topography especially if it's a young person, because I know that keratoconus is a possibility. And that is our topic for today, keratoconus. A lot of you wanted to talk about this because a lot of people do have keratoconus. It's not, I wouldn't say it's a common disease, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of them more common in a young, in the younger age group. And so, um, and so let's just go over what this disease is. So keratoconus is a disorder of the cornea where you have progressive thinning and steepening of the cornea that results in irregular astigmatism. Oh, I just threw a lot of words at you. Okay, so let's go through this. First, what is astigmatism? All right, I, ho I hope you guys like this. Uh, you know, if, if I tell you what, if you end up turning this episode off, uh, uh, please comment exactly where you turned it off. That would be very helpful for me anyway. Um, so astigmatism, a lot of people have astigmatism. Astigmatism is pretty normal. Uh, and you know, for those of you who have kind of elongated light, like if you were to look at lights at night and they're kind of elongated or you get like a starburst. Um, uh, that's often, uh, a sign that you have some astigmatism. And so it, it, astig describing astigmatism does get kind of, it can get complicated. So I'll just, I'll try to summarize it as best I can. An eye that has no astigmatism whatsoever has a cornea that is perfectly spherical. Like almost like you would take a, like a basketball, cut it in half and that, that half of it you put it right on the eye, that would be a big cornea. But basically, that's what a perfectly spherical cornea would be. It's like a half of a basketball right over your eye. All right. An eye with astigmatism would be more like a football. All right. So a football would be steeper going like one direction. We call it a meridian, like going from north to south. You can think of a football, like American American football, I should specify, as if, like, I'm sure all of you recognize that's what I was talking about. But um, if you go north to south on a football, then it, it's going to be steeper. And if you go east to west, it's going to be flatter, right? So you have, uh, 
one curvature that's steeper, one curvature that's flatter. So an, a cornea that has astigmatism to it is shaped more like an American football as opposed to a basketball. That's how I explain it to patients. That's really as much as you really need to know. And that So that would be what we call regular astigmatism, regular astigmatism. If you have a regular astigmatism, we can easily treat that in glasses or contacts. With keratoconus, though, we're talking about irregular astigmatism. So what can happen is if you have, there's a lot of different things. If you have a scar on your cornea, um, or if you have a corneal dystrophy, uh, lots of different diseases of the cornea can cause irregular astigmatism. Keratoconus is one of those things, all right? So what happens in keratoconus, and to be honest, we don't know exactly why this happens, all right? There's a lot of associations with keratoconus that we're gonna get to, but um, um, basically what it shows, what happens is you get thinning of uh, a certain layer, the corneal stroma, that's the big thick layer of the cornea, it starts to thin and it destabilizes the cornea. And so it starts to get flatter in certain areas and it starts to get steeper in other areas, uh, but not in a normal pattern like you would see in a football. An irregular, like a lumpy football. It's like a football that's totally misshapen. It's like a deflated football. It's like for the deflate gate uh, a few years back. You got a, like a deflated football. It's all weird looking and 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 lumpy, and some one side's caved in, and the other one's like you know more curved. That's kind of what you end up getting when you have this progressive disease like keratoconus. The cornea is just too irregular to the point where glasses can't fix it, and so that's why this patient, our twenty-year-old with eczema and blurry vision, that's why we can't get this patient with glasses seeing 2020 because the astigmatism is not regular like a football. It's irregular like a lumpy football, like a deflated football, okay? And that's because you have this thinning of the corneal layers that cause the cornea to be totally destabilized, all right? Now, as I said, we don't really know why this happens. Like what there's, we think there's a, a it does sometimes occur, uh, recur in families, but there's not a strong genetic predisposition to it. But there are certain things that uh, can uh, lead to keratoconus. One of them, probably the most common, is eye rubbing. So we're always telling people not to rub their eyes. And so this patient, our patient today with history of eczema, there you go. I ask him, hey, because well, what I do is I'll get this uh, imaging study right there in the exam room, this corneal topography. What this does, it topography, like a map, it maps out the cornea. It can show me, oh, look, this is a lumpy football cornea, or this is a perfect cornea, spherical cornea, or a normal inflated football cornea. So I can look at this guy's cornea, his topography, and say, oh, look, yeah, clearly it's deflated, it's lumpy. This looks like keratoconus, and there's typical patterns to it that can tell you one disease versus the other. And so I, I, I ask him, I'll, I'll always ask these people with this appearance to the cornea, do you, uh, do you rub your eyes? And this patient says, oh yeah, you know, my eczema has been really acting up lately. I've been doing a lot of eye rubbing. 
there you have it. That's that's and that's the diagnosis. If the cornea, if the topography looks like someone with keratoconus and they're young, and uh, which is, is typically when keratoconus shows up and it starts to get progressive, then uh, then you have your diagnosis. Um, there's lots of different associations with keratoconus. People with sleep apnea, certain connective tissue disorders, uh, Down syndrome, retinitis pigmentosa. Um, uh, we're not going to get into all of those things, uh, because again, I told you guys, I would be efficient with these. I'm trying my best, but there's a lot to go through with some of these things. Um, uh, so we're not going to get to all that, but I do want to talk uh, about, um, uh, a little bit about eye rubbing because what, what eye rubbing does, like, we're talking a lot of eye rubbing. Like I, you guys, I get it. It feels so good. Like how could something feel so good? But, but be so bad for you. Isn't that like most things in life that are bad for you, right, though? They're, they're kind of like they're nice, and that's why it's probably bad for you. So the um, eye rubbing, it just it destabilizes the cornea. It can cause damage to the cornea. You can get scarring. You can get a, a, that irregular shape from chronic eye rubbing. So we're always telling people, don't, don't try not to rub your eyes. Sometimes just stopping rubbing the eyes can ca- allow the cornea to, to relax and go back to its uh, normal shape. Uh, so that's obviously something you got to do, avoid doing, which brings me to the don't do that eyeball tip of the week or don't do that eyeball tip of the week. Everyone don't rub your eyes too much. Like, Hey, I'll be the first to admit. All right. Like when I get in the, when I get up in the morning, oh God, you get a good little eye rub in and, and you know, it's, uh, we're all, we're only human. Okay. Just, just like real quick to, Oh man. Nice little, I'm rub right now. Just gave a little rub. That's okay. That's okay. Like don't, don't, you know, you you got to live your life. Everyone, you got to, we got to rub your, like, don't get too crazy with it. Like, don't just don't get after it because you'll really cause some damage to your eyes, but you can give yourself a little, you know, live a little. It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's all right. Just everything in moderation. Okay. Don't rub your eyes aggressively. One little rub. That's okay. All right, so we got our diagnosis of keratoconus. What can we do for keratoconus? So we got this irregular cornea. It's causing vision loss. Sometimes it can cause a lot worse problems. You can get like scarring. You can get um, a, a, a dramatic swelling of the cornea. That's called corneal hydrops, which is like you get just a big swollen cornea. So there's there's a, there's various very serious things can come from keratoconus. It can be very mild. Or it can be very dangerous and very um, aggressive. So, for a long time, the the well, the initial treatment obviously is glasses. It, glasses or contacts. So, even if someone has mild keratoconus, you may be able to get them seeing well enough with glasses. Sometimes you can't, and you have to prescribe special contact lenses. And this, these are spe- contact lenses that vault over the eye. They're huge contact lenses called scleral lenses. That basically, they they just go over the eye and they they negate any any curvature at all. It like provides like almost like a new cornea. Just it, gets, it neutralizes that irregular astigmatism. They're called scleral lenses. Uh, so that's an option. That's an option. But there is a newer technology that was FDA approved in 2016. It's probably been around for about 10 years now. Um, I think it was probably uh, used in Europe before it was uh, brought to the U.S. Um, that's called uh, corneal 
uh, cross-linking. So cross-linking is a procedure that is used for a mild to moderate kind of early stage keratoconus before it starts to progress because often keratoconus will progress with time. So that's why it's important to try to catch it early. Uh, and so you have a young person that comes in, it looks like, yeah, they've got the beginning stages of keratoconus. Uh, you can do this uh, procedure called corneal cross-linking where you, um, here's how the procedure works. Take them to the operating room and you remove the top layer of epithelium called, uh, sorry, the top layer of cells called the epithelium. Basically, you give the eye a giant corneal abrasion, but on purpose. And then you add drops to the cornea. They're riboflavin drops. I'm not going to get into why this works, but it does. It's really effective um, uh, for certain people. You have to qualify for it. But you, you give these riboflavin drops in. And then you treat the eye. You gotta, you gotta like sit there and drop the eye for I don't know how long, like twenty minutes, or something. Just like dropping, drop, drop, drop. Uh, like some kind of water torture type of situation. But the eye, is, it's it's all numbed up and everything, so the patient's not feeling it. Um, and then uh, and then you treat the eye with a with a a, a type of uh, light that uh, has a specific wavelength uh, that that. Uh, strengthens that cell layer that's gotten weaker. All right. It strengthens it and it helps prevent progression of keratoconus. So it just re-strengthens a, a weakening cornea that you see in keratoconus. So corneal cross-link. It's a relatively new procedure. Not done everywhere. In fact, we don't do it at our practice. Um, I don't think at this point. Uh, so it's a specialized surgery. Probably, you know, lots of academic centers will probably have it. But it's a, it can be very effective for young people with early keratoconus that hasn't progressed because the goal of that treatment is to s stop the progression of keratoconus. And then if uh, keratoconus progresses, if you've got really severe keratoconus or you have uh, terrible scarring that's, that's causing vision loss, then, um, uh, then the gold standard treatment uh, for that would still be a what's called a penetrating keratoplasty, which sounds scary, but it's a, it's a corneal transplant, a full thickness corneal transplant. You just remove the cornea, and you take a donor cornea, and you put it right there. You suture it on. There you go. So, it's a long it's a it's a, a long recovery with some of a surgery like that. But patients do very well with corneal transplant. It's still done to this day for for like really severe cases of keratoconus. Ooh, that is keratoconus. Let's see, how are we doing on time? I, I, okay, we're, we're, we're doing okay. Um, all right. So remember, I promised you guys I try to keep these to like 30, 35 minutes. We're at 28 minutes here. So hopefully I answered all of your questions about keratoconus. Um, it's, uh, oh, the other thing that we see sometimes is people who have had LASIK. Because think about it. If you think about what LASIK is, is you are thinning the cornea. You're removing certain parts of the cornea to, to, to flatten it. To, but you're changing the shape of the cornea when you have LASIK or PRK. So anytime you do that, you run the risk of destabilizing the cornea and causing irregular curvature or keratoconus, right? So 
I saw a patient not too long ago, actually, with uh, had a history of LASIK and started to develop um, some keratoconus, some some thinning and some steepening, some deflated football-ishness of the cornea. And uh, it kind of changes the way you treat certain things. It changes the way you treat cataract surgery. It changes the way you approach glasses or contacts. Or So, um, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, something that, but fortunately, it's, it's pretty easy to diagnose. So it's, it's not something that, you know, you can miss it if you're not looking for it. But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to diagnose with uh, the, the type of imaging technology we have in really every eye clinic out there. Oh, let's see. I think that's all I got on keratoconus. Oh, there's some like interesting treatments that I don't think they're done as much anymore. One was called Intax, where you like take these plastic bands and you like embed them in the cornea. There's a lot of very interesting uh, surgeries that have been done over the years with cat with uh, with eyeballs that aren't done as much not that they're bad some of them are bad that one was okay i think but it, it you know surgery sometimes you don't really know the effects of what's going to happen you know 20 30 years down the line um and so that's that's kind of um the scary thing about newer technologies uh you know but uh with the as far as the uh corneal cross-linking great results you know and it's it's uh um it really does help people so that is your case keratoconus all right let's do a couple a couple other little tidbits here uh how about your ophthalmology fun fact here's you go here you go but you don't know this um do you know how oxygen reaches the cornea because i guess i guess i realized i didn't tell you much about the cornea itself you know, the cornea is clear. We did mention that. So it's that clear covering on the front of the eye. Uh, and and it, it, the reason it stays clear is because it doesn't have any blood vessels in it. It's got, it got to stay. You, you don't want blood vessels in your cornea because uh, that, that, uh, that brings stuff that can make the cornea more cloudy. You don't want fluid. You don't want swelling in your cornea. You want that cornea perfectly crystal clear. So, but every tissue has to have oxygen. So how do you get oxygen to the cornea? It actually comes from your tears. It diffuses from your tears into your cornea. So your uh, tears are so important for the health of the cornea. You have to have a really nice, what we call tear film covering the cornea that provides all the nutrients and every, all that good stuff that the cornea needs comes from your tears and a little bit from like the eyelid vasculature, the vessels in your eyelid. When you close your eyes, you're sleeping. When you sleep, you feed your corneas. Yeah, it's like little windshield wipers on your cornea. You just close them and it's just like you're you're nice. nice. You're helping out your cornea with your eyelids. And it, it's great. Eyelids and cornea, they are, uh, it's a symbiotic relationship. They really love each other. Um, I, I think the eyelids are doing most of the heavy lifting there. But anyway. And then let's see, I got a question from a Glockham flock. So sometimes I'll do a question from a Glockham fleck. That's one of my kids asking the question. Sometimes it'll be a question from a member of the Glock flock. So this is a question from a member of the Glock flock. I guess I'll call it a Glockham flock. Question from a Glockham flock. <laughs> okay, here we go. What would happen if you got your eye ripped out? <laughs> that's, that's, 
That's the question today from Leah. Uh, Leah, sorry, Leah. Leah asked a few questions, and I might come back to another one in a later episode. But what would happen if your eye got ripped out? Okay, so a lot of people have questions about, like, can your eye pop out? Like, it pops out. Does it just lay on your cheek? Uh, the answer is no, it does not. Uh, so it would actually take a lot to like rip your eyeball out because there's a lot of tissue holding that thing in place. And it's got this long optic nerve that's really tough. And so it really, it takes a lot, a lot of force to, to get your, to have your eye like just, just snatched out like the kill bill, like snatched from the socket. Um, and so what would happen if that did happen? Well, you would be blind in that eye because it would be gone. You don't have an eye anymore. Can you reattach it? Technically, I guess you could, but it still wouldn't see. You don't? Nope. There's, it's just, they, there, there was actually a, a recent story. I think someone, they did some kind of a, an eye transplant uh, somewhere. But uh, from what I have read, the eye did not regain any vision. So I'm not totally sure what the point is of it. I guess it, it just the, like proof of concept, <laughs> like you can reattach an eye. But um, anyway, so that's what would happen. You'd be blind. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're going for. Um, but, uh, but no, in the eye, it does not just like if it pops out, it won't just lay on your cheek. All right. It would, it would actually, your eyelids would actually close behind the eye and so it would just it would be like really protruding but it would just still be right there right there in front of your face uh it, it doesn't dangle so anyway <laughs> i'm so glad you asked that question uh leia thank you so much for that and thank you all for listening i am your host will flannery also known as dr glockenflecken Special thanks to our executive producers, Aaron Corney, Rob Goldman, and Shanti Brooke. Editor and engineer, Jason Portizo. Our music is by Omar, Omar Benzvi. Um, if you have any suggestions for uh, um, for future episodes of Knock Knock Eye, please, please comment. Let me know. I'm always looking for suggestions. And uh, you can also email us, uh, knockknockhigh at human-content.com. Uh, and I'm happy to, to take um, all of your thoughts and uh, put them into future episodes. So a lot of people have questions about eyeballs. I'm here to answer. Knock Knock High is a human content production.